Welcome everyone to episode 9 of Ohio Unsolved. I'm your host Matthew, and I have a pretty interesting episode for you guys today. In the first story, we travel back to the 1930s in Cleveland to hear about the Mad Butcher of Kingsbury Run. Make sure you check us out on Facebook and Instagram. We're almost to 500 members on Facebook, and I would love to get there by the end of the year. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider supporting us on Patreon. I have three tiers to choose from, with some pretty cool extras like bonus episodes set to start this month and bonus videos I plan on starting next year. Now, with all that being said, make sure to lock your doors and windows and get ready for Ohio Unsolved. For our first story, we're going all the way back to the 1930s in Cleveland, Ohio. This one is pretty graphic, so listener discretion is advised. In September of 1935, the first two bodies were found in the Kingsbury Run area of Cleveland. They were both beheaded and emasculated. Shortly after the police arrived, they found the heads and bodies. One of the bodies looked like it had been treated with a chemical that made it leathery and red in color. One of the odd things was that there was no blood at the crime scene, like the killer had murdered them elsewhere and transported the bodies there. To this day, one of the two bodies still hasn't been identified. The other belonged to Edward Andresy, who the police already knew to be a petty criminal. One strange thing about the unidentified man is that he was murdered weeks before Edward was murdered. Just a few months later, a third body was discovered in January 1936. Florence Palillo, who was known to frequent the bars and pubs in the area, was found. She had been beheaded and dismembered. It was at this point that Cleveland Chief of Public Safety, Elliot Ness, became involved in the case. In June of the same year, a man's body was found. The still unidentified man had six tattoos on his body, and the police even displayed the morgue reports of the man, but no one could identify who he was. Then, in September, a partial body was found with a hat. The police identified the hat as one given to a homeless man by an unknown woman and that seemed to show that whomever was murdering these people 
were only targeting people from a lower social class. Over the next few months, there was a slight lull in the murders, but that didn't stop the police from investigating. Six more bodies were found, with the last body being found in August 1938. In total, there were 12 people murdered by the Butcher of Kingsbury Run. All 12 were decapitated and some dismembered even more than that. But just like Jack the Ripper, some people speculate that he had more than only 12 victims. Several non-canonical victims are commonly discussed in connection with the Torso Murderer. The first was nicknamed the Lady of the Lake and was found near Euclid Beach on the Lake Erie shore on September 5, 1934 at virtually the same spot as victim number seven. Some researchers of the torso's murderers count the Lady of the Lake as victim number one or victim zero. The headless body of an unidentified male was found in a boxcar in Newcastle, Pennsylvania on July 1st, 1936. Three headless victims were found in boxcars near McKee's Rocks, Pennsylvania on May 3rd, 1940. All bore similar injuries to those inflicted by the Cleveland Killer. Dismembered bodies were also found in the swamps near Newcastle between the years 1921 and 1934, and between 1939 and 1942. In September of 1940, an article in the Newcastle News refers to the killer as the Murder Swamp Killer. The almost identical similarities between the victims in Newcastle to those in Cleveland, Ohio, coupled with the similarities between Newcastle's Murder Swamp and Cleveland's Kingsbury Run, both of which were directly connected by a, a Baltimore and Ohio railroad line, were enough to convince Cleveland detective Peter Marylow that the Newcastle murders were the work of the Mad Butcher of Kingsbury Run. Marylow was convinced the connection was the railroad that ran twice a day between the two cities. He often rode the rails undercover looking for any clues to the killer's identity. On July 22, 1950, the body of 41-year-old Robert Robertson was found at a business at 2138 Davenport Avenue in Cleveland. Police believed that he had been dead for six to eight weeks and appeared to have been intentionally decapitated. His death appeared to fit the profile of other victims. He was estranged from his family, he had an arrest record and a drinking problem, and was on the fringes of society. Despite widespread newspaper coverage linking the murder to the crimes in the 1930s, detectives investigating Robertson's death treated it as an isolated crime. In 1939, the quote, torso killer claimed to have killed a victim in Los Angeles, California. An investigation uncovered animal bones. The police did have a few suspects in these murders, however, none were ever convicted. On August 24, 1939, a Cleveland resident named Frank Dolezal, 52, was arrested as a suspect in Florence Polillo's murder. He later died in suspicious circumstances in the Cuyahoga County Jail. 
Most investigators consider the last canonical murder to have been in 1938. One suspected individual was Dr. Francis E. Sweeney, born May 5, 1894. Sweeney was a veteran of World War I who was part of a medical unit that conducted amputations in the field. After the war, Sweeney became an alcoholic due to pathological anxiety and depression derived from his wartime experiences. Sweeney was later personally interviewed by Elliot Ness, who oversaw the official investigation into the killings in his capacity as Cleveland's safety director. Before the interrogation, Sweeney was detained and he was found to be so intoxicated that he was held in a hotel room for three days until he sobered up. During this interrogation, Sweeney is said to have failed to pass two very early polygraph machine tests. Both tests were administered by polygraph expert Leonard Keeler, who told Ness he had his man. Ness apparently felt there was little chance of obtaining a successful prosecution of the doctor, especially as he was the first cousin of one of Ness's political opponents, Congressman Martin L. Sweeney, who had hounded Ness publicly about his failure to catch the killer. After Sweeney committed himself, there were no more leads or connections that police could assign to him as a possible suspect. From his hospital confinement, Sweeney sent threatening postcards and harassed Ness and his family well into the 1950s, and the postcards only stopped arriving after his death. Sweeney died in a veterans hospital in Dayton, Ohio on July 9, 1964. In 1997, another theory postulated that there may have been no single butcher of Kingsbury Run because the murders could have been committed by different people. This was based on the assumption that the autopsy results were inconclusive. First, Cuyahoga County Coroner Arthur J. Pierce may have been inconsistent in his analysis as to whether the cuts on the bodies were expert or from someone inexperienced. Second, his successor, Samuel Gerber, who began to enjoy press attention from his involvement in such cases as the Sam Shepard murder trial, garnered a reputation for sensational theories. Therefore, the only thing known for certain was that all the murder victims were dismembered. To this day, no one knows the true identity of the Mad Butcher of Kingsbury Run. And just like Jack the Ripper, I don't think we'll ever know who they were. I just hope for the sake of those murdered that they were dead before they had their most private parts removed from their body. Such a terrible thing to do to people. Our next story is from an unknown Ohio location and it's about a shadow man spying on a girl while in the shower. I'll be reading from the author's perspective. This story took place when I was 17 years old. I was spending the night with my friend, and I had no time to shower before leaving my own house, so I had to decide to take one at her house. It was already night by the time I got there. I have always had a feeling of dread any time I was in her house, especially in the bathroom. Now my friend, Anna, had a glass shower door. You could see perfectly through it, 
and in anywhere in the bathroom. I never shut the bathroom door because it had a habit of getting stuck only on me. It would not open until Anna would force it open. Mind you, now there was nothing wrong with this door. I was showering with the door open that night so it wouldn't get stuck. Anna was sitting in the living room watching TV. The living room is on the other side of the bathroom wall. There is no way to see it from the bathroom and vice versa. When I had turned around to face the bathroom door, I saw someone standing in the doorway. Something dressed in black. It appeared to be peeking around the corner. So thinking Anna was playing a trick on me, I immediately asked, Anna, are you standing in the doorway? She replied, no, I'm sitting in the living room still. I freaked, opened the door to the shower and saw it. This thing was almost wrapped around the side of the wall with its head twisted around and pressed to the wall. It was like it had turned its head completely upside down, but was standing. It stayed there for a moment, just staring and twisted until I yelled for Anna. I yelled frantically for her to get in the bathroom. By the time she got there, it was gone. I didn't see where it went. It just sort of disappeared like it was never there. When Anna got to the bathroom, she looked everywhere for something that may have been giving some sort of reflection, but nothing was found. I finished showering rather quick and made Anna stay in the doorway until I was finished. Also, the front and back door were visible to where Anna was sitting in the living room, so no one was able to sneak past her and into or out of the house without her seeing them. We tried numerous times to duplicate the contortion of the image I had seen, but we were unable to. To this very day, we are still not sure what or who it was, and I haven't seen it since. I'm now very leery about showering at other people's houses. That was definitely a creepy story. I honestly don't know what I would do if I saw a shadow man watching me while I'm taking a shower. And I definitely wouldn't shower at a friend's house if I felt anything like that. Have any of you had any experiences with a shadow man? I'd love to hear about it and share it on a future episode. Now, our final story is another unknown location in Ohio. It's about an experience with a Ouija board. I'll be reading from the author's perspective. I'm 27, and I live in a small city in Ohio. When I was 16, I met this girl named Rebecca, and we got along pretty good, and to this day, she's still my best friend. The same day we met, I found out that she lived in a house that I was way too familiar with. Another best friend of mine had lived there a few years before, and my uncle dated her mom, so I stayed with them regularly. You'll want to remember this. It wasn't very long after I met Becca that I was practically living with her and her family, which consisted of her, her younger sister Nikki, and her father. Her mom passed away years before I met them. I loved staying with them because her dad worked a 12-hour night shift at our town's local steel mill, and he was pretty naive to what young girls left home alone at night could and would get into. But it was awesome. We also had sleepovers with a few of our other closest friends, and at that age, we were experimenting new things, 
with Smoking Pot being one of our favorite trials. We really like to play our music loudly and dance and laugh and have a good time. Well, there's one night that I will definitely never forget. It was in June of 2006. It was on a Friday and it was storming outside. It was close to midnight. There was myself, Rebecca, Kristen, Angel, and another girl named Angie. We were all in Becca's room having a good time. Nikki, Rebecca's younger sister, was in their dad's room asleep. We had just finished smoking and we were all higher than we should have been. And Angie said, hey, look what I brought. And she pulled out a Ouija board of her bag. All of the girls were excited and ready to play. I, on the other hand, was very skeptical. I was afraid of what they were going to bring to the surface, but they talked me into it and I wish that they hadn't. We lit candles and turned the lights out. The windows in the bedroom were open because it was so smoky. It got very quiet. All you could hear was the rain and the thunder crackling from outside. So we all sat there with our two little fingers on the small plastic piece and one of the girls asked if there were any spirits present. We all watched for a couple of minutes with anticipation. Nothing. Again, if there are any spirits here, let yourself be known or something along those lines. We were all concentrating so deeply on this board and then out of nowhere, Nikki from the other room screamed and ran into our room crying. She was literally shaking, saying there was a man standing over her in the other room and she thought that he had walked into the closet. All of a sudden, there was a loud crash of thunder that scared the mess out of all of us. We turned the lights on quickly and cautiously walked towards the other room. One of us with a baseball bat, one with a baton, and Rebecca had grabbed a big knife out of the kitchen. There was light shining out of the room from the TV, but the rest of the room was dark. Becky reached her hand inside and flipped the light on and gave the door a push so we could see inside. Kristen was on the phone with her mom. They only lived about two or three minutes away, and her mom said that she would be right there. So with all six of us inside her dad's room, we were still scared to open the closet door. A few minutes later, the doorbell rang kind of gave us all a chill, but it was Kristen's mom, and we told her what happened minus the Ouija board. She opened the closet door, and one of, one of our cats jumped out. It made Kristen's mom scream a little, and we all got a good laugh out of that. But no one knew how Buttons, our cat, had gotten in there. Kristen's mom checked around the rest of the house, including the basement, but everything was okay, so she left us there and told us that we could call her back if we needed to. Well, needless to say, Nikki ended up staying in our room the rest of the night, and when she was able to fall asleep, I decided to tell the girls what I knew, and this is it. After my uncle Francis broke up with his girlfriend, I wasn't allowed to stay there very often because my mom was told that Francis had started using hardcore drugs and that she was partying a lot. Francis started seeing a new man named John, who I had met a few times. He seemed like a nice guy, and he'd take us back and forth to the roller rink and things like that. But Mo had told us of her mom and John fighting a lot. 
Well, the last night I stayed in that house, before I met Rebecca, was one of the craziest nights of my life. Me and two other girls, Laura and Amanda, were sleeping over at my friend Moe's. We were in her room, which is the same room that was now Rebecca's. We were listening to music and stuffing our faces with the normal sleepover junk food and just enjoying ourselves when Francis and John started arguing. First, they were in the living room, and we heard her say, Where is it at, John? And he said, There isn't any. And they went into their room, which was now Rebecca's dad's room. A few minutes had passed where we could hear them shouting back and forth, and it sounded like a glass had been busted on the other side of the wall. Mo went to knock on her mom's door. She was worried that her mom was getting beat up. All of a sudden, we heard a loud bang and I heard Frances screaming John's name. Mo opened the door and Frances started screaming at her to get out. Mo saw a portion of John lying on the bed and blood all over. Frances was screaming for all of us to get out of the house. She said, get help! We were scared and we didn't know what had happened. We all ran next door to Mo's grandma's house, where her younger brother and sister was staying for the night. Mo started telling her grandma what was going on and to call for the police. Frances, within one minute or so, ran over crying and had blood all over her. She was screaming to call the police. She said, John, John, he's dead. We all started flipping out, crying. He had killed himself. He shot himself right in the head. The police came and investigated and interviewed all of us. All of our parents had to come for us to be released to them. I was only 12 when this happened, and I will never forget that night. After that, Mo's mom had to go to rehab, and she spent several months in a psychiatric hospital in Pennsylvania. Mo and her brother and sister moved away with their grandma. When all of this stuff happened with the Ouija board, I knew in my heart that the man that Nikki had seen was John. I could feel it in my soul. When I finished telling everyone my story, Angel started to cry as she grabbed onto my arm. She pointed to a window in the room where the porch was, and there was a shadow standing there like it was watching or listening, and all of us started scooting on our butts with our backs toward the bedroom door, keeping our eyes focused on the window. I said, thanks for watching out for us, John, but you can go now. You're scaring us. And without the shadow moving in any direction, it just disappeared. It was gone, and we all still tell this story to this day. I think if he had not showed his shadow to us there on the porch right at that time, that my friends would have never believed me, only because it was such a traumatic experience. Before I moved in with Becca and her family, when I first told my mom where she lived, my mom told me that I was going to see him again. She also told me to tell them what had happened there in that house. I still have trouble talking about it. I wanted to tell them and I thought about it often. I just couldn't bring myself to say it. I have not seen Mo for many years now. And I see the other girls who were there that night very seldom. But when we do run into each other, there's a silence that we all know well. The first time I saw Laura after I had this experience with John's ghost 
I had to explain to her in detail what had happened that night, and there was such a heaviness in the air, and we were both chilled to the bone with goosebumps. There's one thing I'll never do, it's mess with a Ouija board. Whether you believe in them or not, I don't think that anything good can come from it. Well, that's it for today's episode. I hope everyone enjoyed the stories. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram. And if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, please rate and review. A five-star rating really helps spread this podcast to others who may enjoy it as well. Also, please share with any friends and family who like this kind of content. If you enjoy this yourself, please consider supporting us on Patreon. The first bonus episode is set to launch this month, with the video content set to launch early next year. As always, keep those doors and windows locked, and stay ready for Ohio Unsolved.